you know, when people I love and care about on the field here in the States are going through the hard times, only God's going to be there with them and only God's with me. And I want to help them hear God speaking to them personally in the depths of their being and know and and recognize his voice. Welcome to Faithful Innovation. I'm Tina Jason. I love learning about the way God's love motivates how people serve the world. Hearing authentic personal stories deepens my understanding of how God transforms regular work and everyday encounters into acts of grace. Join me as I seek out ordinary people in cities, suburbs, small towns, and rural places who are doing extraordinary things. The goal, to inspire a wholesome expression of faith in your life, ministry, or business. Kate McCord is a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, deeply committed to intimacy with Christ and the ministry that flows from that. Kate worked in Afghanistan from 2004 to 2013 as a Christian humanitarian aid worker. She learned a local language, developed deep and lasting friendships with local local Afghans. Prior to moving to Afghanistan, Kate worked in the international corporate community as a business process and strategy consultant. She's the author of Why God Calls Us to Dangerous Places in the Land of Blue Burkas and Farewell Four Waters, all published by Moody Publisher. Today, Kate works as a writer and spiritual director. Kate, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Tina. It's fun to be here. Thank you. To get started, would you just share your faith background growing up? Well, I I didn't really have one. I mean, I guess when you grow up in America, you, you know, there's osmosis factor, right? There are people around me of all different expressions of Christianity. Um, my grandparents went to church, and I went to church with them when I, when I visited them. But church wasn't part of my immediate family tradition. In fact, when I wrote Blue Burkas and I wrote uh, something of my faith story, I said, yeah, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And and my dear mother read that and said, what are you talking about? What do you mean you didn't grow up in a Christian home? I always believed in God. I always believed in Jesus. And I thought that was kind of funny because I recognized that she talked about God a fair bit, um, but usually it was to yell at God. <laughs> so uh, I, I didn't quite understand that as, a, as an expression of faith. And I didn't come to faith until I was a young adult and um, I heard the gospel. And I really heard the gospel. And actually, my immediate reaction was to get angry. <laughs> so I was challenged to read scripture. And I thought, well, I've, you know, I've read lots of other stuff. So why not give it a try? And when I read the Bible, I thought I had to start at Genesis, you know, read the whole thing in order, right through the begats. I got as far as Hosea and bakers and ovens and prophecies that I couldn't understand. And someone said, yeah, you should go to the Jesus part. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And, and I met God in the pages of scripture and committed my life to him. And, and then I thought it might be a good idea to go to church. So I did. And that was, that was really my side of the coming to faith story. But I think we never know what what's really going on, right? Because the the other person in that relationship was always God. And what he was doing and how he was doing it and through whom he was working all those years is something maybe when I get to heaven, I'll think about asking him. But certainly this side of of glory, I I don't think we can know. I don't think we can know really uh, how God draws us to himself and 
how he protects us and watches over us and leads us. And that just utterly fascinates me. He's always pursuing. So I became aware of you and your work through a friend, first by reading In the Land of Blue Burgas. And as I was reading, I just kept thinking, what an adventure. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm wondering what led you to Afghanistan? Yeah. No, that would be the God side of the story too, right? <laughs> I was not praying to go and be a long-term missionary in a landlocked country where women live under burqas and, and uh, <laughs> you know, a people group that had known war already then uh, for a great many years. I was just kind of asking God, you know, is this it? I guess I was in my early 40s at the time or just turned 40. I was just in a season saying, okay, you know, I've kind of made it. I've made it professionally. Um, I have a a great house, a great income, a great church, a great 401k, uh, wonderful people in my life. Is there something else? And and I think that was probably the the door that opened or the door that I opened. And I, I began praying about, you know, what's next? Where do you want me to to serve you, to invest the passions. And, and I was involved. I was very much involved in, in my church as, as much as I could be with the career that I had. And honestly, if you had told me in 2000 that uh, I, I would one day even want to go to Afghanistan, I would have said, yeah, you're really out of your mind. Like I can think of 20 more fun things to do than, than move to a war-torn country. I think that prayer of saying, okay, what do you have for me? And opening my hands before God and being willing. I, think, I remember saying, you know, okay, here's my career and here's my house and here's my, my bank account. And these things are all great, but yeah, they're not everything. And I, and I remember laying those before the Lord and, and just saying, what's next? It was later that I stumbled upon a book. I picked up a book at an airport in Copenhagen on the way home and I read most of it before I landed in Philadelphia. It was about Afghanistan. It was a secular book. And I was smitten. Mm. I was completely captivated. And that was just before Thanksgiving in 2000. That was, and that was the beginning. And then I prayed and wrestled and searched. And, but I really think it began when I opened my hands to God and said, hey, I'm here. I'm middle-aged. I've done it. I've done the building. If you got to prove anything in this world, like our society that says, yeah, you have to have a career and a house and all these other things. I did it. And then I, I think we get to a point where we say, or some of us say, yeah, but isn't there more? I think that's where I got to. I think that and was thankfully, he doesn't always tell us everything up front. <laughs> One step at a time. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's grace. <laughs> <laughs> so it also makes me wonder how your experience in such a different culture shaped your understanding of God's grace and work in this world. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the fantastic things about dropping into a different culture, one of the first things that happens is that you learn your own culture. It's really amazing because you think, oh, here I am, you know, I'm relatively, I'm a neophyte. I can barely speak the language. I've sort of got the skills, the social skills of a two-year-old, pretty dumb, pretty helpless here. I should be learning everything I can about Afghan culture and, of course, Afghan language. But along the way, we also learn our own culture. And along with learning my own culture was recognizing that in my mind and in my experience, 
the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the United States of America, while not synonymous, <laughs> it wasn't that foolish, but were very tightly woven. And the challenge, one of the great challenges for me in being in Afghanistan, I mean, other than the challenge of staying alive and healthy and warm in the winter and you know, being fed and having clean water, those, those were day-to-day realities. But one of the deeper challenges for me was, was in helping Afghans understand who God is, who Jesus is, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, unentangled from the United States of America and the American culture and the way we perceive things and the way we do things. And some things were simple, like, you know, why don't you wear a scarf? Well, I don't wear a scarf, really, because it's not my culture to wear a scarf. And some of the other workers would say, well, we don't wear scarves because God doesn't say to wear a scarf. And then the Mennonites would show up with their little ad scarves on, like, yeah, blows that one out of the water. Those are really simple things. Mm-hmm. But um, to, to kind of dig into what does it mean for God to be good and to love us and to be involved in our lives and what does he desire for us in a place where we don't have a lot of control I learned a whole lot more about who God is and how God meets me personally in the context of a place where I had to unthread the cultural baggage that I brought with me. Hmm. So as you came back to the U.S., what perspective shifted about this culture and even as it is threaded into Christianity? Yeah, coming back to the United States was harder than going to Afghanistan. I can imagine. Of course, when you... You know, when someone leaves their own culture, we fit <laughs> and we understand our culture intuitively. And while we're gone, we change, those of us who've gone, and our culture has changed. And our culture has changed considerably since early 2000. I remember coming back during the healthcare debate. I was back for that summer. And I would just sit and cry, listening to the voices of people I loved and cared about and and I would think, you know, here in, Af- in where I live in Afghanistan are American doctors who have walked away from very profitable careers to practice medicine in an extraordinarily difficult place for people who will never be able to pay them. And then there are these donors all over the United States who give money so that some Afghan kid can be flown to Turkey to have life-saving surgery. And I come back to the United States and we're yelling and screaming at each other over whether or not People should have health care. Very difficult for me to come to terms with these kinds of things. And of course, in this current season, it's, it's even harder to remember constantly that God does love us all and that we are kind of short-sighted and myopic and tangled up in our wants and fears and desires. And, and still, God calls us to love and God loves us. And for me, the challenge to recognize that both of these things are true and to walk in them in a place that's quite difficult. It's a whole lot easier for me to look into the face of an Afghan who tells me that someday he's going to kill all the Jews than to look into the face of an American Christian who I love and know and have known for 20, 30 years who talks to me with hatred toward Muslims. it's, It's been quite difficult for me. And I, I don't want to sugarcoat that, but I also don't want to paint it as a devastating picture. I think it's just another opportunity for me to breathe the peace and love of God, find the spaces for speaking my own understanding, and embrace and love people where they are with the confidence that, you know what, 
this is all temporary. God is still God. And it places the challenge of love your neighbor in so many different ways. Listening to a friend share about extreme dislike for his literal next door neighbor and having been met with the challenge of, well, God calls us to love our neighbors. So what do we do with that? And develop the practice of of living that authentically in the midst of the challenge of it. Yeah, and there's growth there. And I think in Afghanistan, when the neighbor I was struggling to love was, uh, you know, a former Mujahideen fighter who had done horrible things to, to women, I didn't have any disappointment in that person. He is who he is. My role is to bring to him a God who loves him, to introduce him to a God who loves him. I think coming back into the messiness, the neighbor is maybe someone I really have known for 30 years. Maybe we played together when we were kids, and so we add to it shock and disappointment. And, you know, when Afghans did things that were really bad, I, I wasn't shocked. When an American brother or sister says something that's a quarter inch bad instead of a mile, I'm shocked and appalled <laughs> because I don't expect it, right? And yeah. this is the place where God calls us to walk in humility and walk in love and forgiveness and grace and patience. Yeah. And, and, expecting to receive that as well in my own short-sightedness and hard-heartedness and the places that, that I'm just not getting it because I see things from a different point of view, expecting to receive from others the same grace that I expect of myself to give to others. When it comes to Jesus, what might be something that's easily expressed across cultures? You know, this is the great thing about God incarnate in Jesus, right? He's human. What isn't easy to express about Jesus across cultures? He's a baby crying in a manger, sticking his fingers in his mouth, being vulnerable, probably being a little sassy from time to time. You know, a child, a teenager, a man, a, a man who had a job. I mean, we like to say carpenter, and I, I know we don't really know for sure, but he had a job. He worked his job. He, he went to work all day. And then he, he touched people and he healed people and he said things that, that were good. It, you know, I, I can remember telling these stories about Jesus in Afghanistan. And I, I remember one time this, this mullah, this guy with a religious teacher with a gray beard and telling him about Jesus. And, and, and he kept saying, wow, he's smart. Wow, he's good. And, I, you know, I thought, yeah, that, that's right. That's absolutely right. What doesn't map about Jesus about across cultures is our interpretation of what these things mean. You know, we have this story of the woman at the well, right? And when I came to faith, I kind of learned that she was a bit loose. <laughs> you know, you've had all these men, like that just speaks of nothing but loose. But in the Afghan culture, the first time I read that story with an Afghan woman, she said, oh, that poor woman used by all those men and the last one didn't even have the decency to marry her. And I thought, wow, you know, you're, you're seeing Jesus' conversation with this woman differently because your cultural interpretation of who this woman is is different. And that expands to hear those different cultural understandings, expands our understanding of who, who God is. And that's a, that's a tremendous gift. It is interesting. There's times that I read scripture and I think I, I need to strip away the, the inflection that I would put upon it based on what I think is happening, and just 
read it because I could read it with a different tone and hear something totally different out of it. Just as those cultural interpretations influence how we understand the interaction. Yeah, and I think that's why Eugene Peterson's The The Message Bible was so popular because it invited us to hear scripture differently than we normally did. And, and I think for those of us who spend a, a lot of time in church, and, and I did before I went to Afghanistan, there, there's no churches. There are no public churches in Afghanistan. So I didn't go to church every Sunday. But for those of us who spent a lot of time in churches, reading books, listening to radio, you know, I could listen to a, a preacher and within the opening story, I pretty much can guess not only what passage he's going to draw on, but what his three application principles or one application principle are, are going to be. In some ways, that's great, but in some ways, it inhibits us from hearing Scripture, from hearing, actually, from hearing God speak to us through the Scriptures, from meeting Christ in the Scriptures. It's almost like we come to the book and we say, yeah, I already know what this says. I don't think that that serves us well. And, you know, God has has so much more to say to each one of us, no matter how long we've walked with him. And And it's layers upon layers. Yeah, and there's layers upon layers of God, and there's layers upon layers in our human hearts. I remember looking into the, there was an older woman, I mean, much older, like in her late 80s, I think, at the time, and a godly woman. And, And I was telling her about a retreat I went on and experiencing the love of God. And her face just looked like the face of a child. And she said, oh, I just want to experience more of God's love. And I thought, yeah. I mean, I was a young pup. I was, I was probably 28 or 29. And, and I knew everything. You probably didn't, but I did. I did. I, you know, I knew a lot. And, and I thought, wow, when I get to be 80, 90 years old, I hope that I have that bright, fresh, childlike desire to know God more deeply. I I hope that's the case for me. Well, I'll confess, I have my own sense of know-it-all that I rarely watch a movie twice or read a book twice. And I, like you, came to faith later. I came to faith in my 20s and went to Bible study. And here people were decades older than me who had been reading the same book their whole lives. And I kept thinking, really? (laughs) And here I am several decades down the road, still reading the same book and (laughs) discovering newness and awe and deeper understanding and all of it. So I laugh at myself many times. (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the neat things for me in Afghanistan was the challenge of, in sharing the stories with people, the Jesus stories, the scripture stories, there was a process. You know, I'd I'd read the book, I'd read the story in, in English, that's my language. And then I would, I would translate the story into the local language, into Dari. There, there was by then a, a Dari New Testament, which I could barely read, but the words were not my vocabulary words, right? So have you ever heard anyone speak and they throw in a, a $64 word and you think, what are you talking about? You don't even know what that means. <laughs> it's like you lose all authenticity. So I would have to translate these stories into my you know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade vocabulary, but I would also have to package them. One day, the Honorable Jesus Messiah was talking to some of his friends, and there was this woman, and this is what happened. You know, I had to tell the story like a human being, and I had to package it so I could put it into its place. But what I couldn't do was apply it. I had to let them apply it. I couldn't tell them, and therefore thou shalt. 
had to let the Spirit of God speak to them personally. And I think the, the fascinating thing about having to take Scripture and put it into another language and then, and then present the story of Jesus, I internalized it. I pictured it. I had to see it. I had to smell it. I had to taste it. I, I had to enter the story in order to represent the story. So I did, this, uh, I did this experiment with a group of young adults who came across for six weeks. I gave them the book of Matthew, and I divided it up, and I said, okay, this is what you get to do. You have to tell the story, your piece of the story, when it's your turn. No teaching, no interpretation, but it has to be in your own words. You cannot quote the story, and you can't have the book open. You just have to tell your piece of the story, and then the next person tells their piece. And you do it in the van while you're driving to work. You do it while you're walking down the street. You do it while you're sitting at lunch. You do it, you know, everywhere. And so these kids did this. Young people did that. And at first they thought, you know what? Kate's a geek. (laughs) I was okay with that. But what happened is after a few, a couple of weeks, they got so comfortable telling the Jesus stories in front of Afghans, in front of shopkeepers and drivers, in front of other foreigners, that they found themselves sharing the story of Jesus with those foreigners, those other foreigners, or those drivers, or Afghans in the marketplace, because they became comfortable telling the Jesus story. And I thought, that was probably one of the best things we did that summer. Hmm. Here in the States, we prioritize Bible study, and you got to get it right. And you have to teach, like our model is someone who stands up on Sunday and teach, teaches. But what I gave those young people was just tell the story. And they became comfortable. And these are Bible school students. Like these are not, these aren't slackers, okay? <laughs> these mm-hmm. aren't Bible slackers. Mm-hmm. Young people who really knew scripture were, you know, come across. And it, it just, it was, it was profoundly empowering for them. How did those kind of experiences influence how you communicate Jesus here in the States now, just in your everyday life, maybe compared to before you would have gone? Yeah, the States are different. You know, I could always start a story in Afghanistan with, uh, can I tell you a story? (laughs) Afghans love stories. You know, they all stop talking and they lean forward and they say, yes, do tell. (laughs) And I could start with the honorable Jesus Messiah and they'd sit up straight and say, tell us more. It doesn't work in America. You know, if I'm sitting with a bunch of people or I'm sitting in an airport and I say, hey, can I, can I tell you a story? And let me tell you about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is, you know, God. <laughs> that, that doesn't work. But the process that I followed was I would enter normal conversation with people and I would listen to them. And while I'm listening, I would be asking the Lord, what do you want to share? And I'd look for what came to mind. And often it was a story right out of scripture. Sometimes it was a story out of my own life, uh, you know, what we might call a testimony. Sometimes it was a word of blessing, sometimes a question. And that's the same process I follow here. What comes to mind is, is a little bit different, but the Spirit of God has the power and desire to guide us as we share, if we'll be willing to do that and to be authentic. Like, I never want to pass myself off as, yeah, I got all the answers and I'm the walk-on-water person. Like, I've seen Christians do that. And I, I remember one time I, when I was early in my faith, I tried to do that. And this guy said to me, yeah, there's a little dust on your light bulb. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, I guess there is. <laughs> I had these guys here the other day that were working on my house. They were doing some work. And we were talking about something. And we were actually swapping stories of vehicle accidents. 
And so when I, I told my story, I told the story about losing control in the snow and, and I just added a few words about, you know, I think God must have been looking out for me that day because it had brought God into the conversation. It's the same thing I would do in Afghanistan. I would just do it differently here. The culture's different, right? But I find that if I bring Jesus into a conversation, or if I bring God into a conversation, I find that people are by and large quite open. And I, and I remember coming back from Afghanistan and people said, oh, you can't talk about God here. You can't talk about Jesus here. And I thought, seriously? Because like, I do it everywhere I go. But I, I do it in a way that's natural. I, I don't do it in a way that's, you know, let me tell you how much you're an idiot and how you need to repent or die because, you know, clearly you're not making it. Like, I don't do that. I'm looking for the words that God would have me to share with someone and, and you know, doing it and seeing what happens. And yeah, it's been great. What I hear is so much of that comes out of really listening, engaging in the conversation, listening, but it's listening on a couple of levels. You're listening to the person you're interacting with. You're also listening to the spirit of what the spirit may bring to mind that now just dovetails perfectly into the conversation that you're having with the person you're conversing with. Then it's not an agenda. It's just a normal part of the conversation because it's who you are. Yeah. And I think that in the very practical sense, Tina, what helps to keep it from becoming an agenda is asking the follow-up question. You know, scripture tells us, yeah, you should, you should probably be a little slower to speak, Kate. And Afghanistan forced me to do that because I, I had to ask the follow-up two or three questions just to figure out what was going on. <laughs> so I, I think what keeps it from being agendas is asking the second question or the third question. And, you know, it's like the Spirit of God is saying to me, Kate, listen twice, <laughs> speak once. And I don't think I did that before I went to Afghanistan because I was smart, but just in case you missed it, I'm really smart. And I've got, you know, I know exactly what you need to hear right now. And I'm not sure how arrogant I was, but pretty arrogant. But then I got to Afghanistan and, you know, I'd have to ask the second and third question just to figure out what was going on. But the thing about asking that follow-up question is that you communicate to someone that they matter, that their story matters that you're not going to judge them. And, and I think the very act of listening deeply to someone models the heart of God, the heart of a God who is always listening to us and not like listening to us and saying, you know, motor mouth, why is that lady babbling over there? Like God cares about what's on our heart. I think when we listen deeply to someone, we're communicating the heart of God. Sometimes we think that what's most important is what we say. It's the information or the knowledge we give. And, and sometimes we think it's what we do. You know, I need to give, write a check, or I need to do something. All those things have value. Listening has value. It communicates to someone the heart of a God who cares about absolutely everything we have to say. And I think when we start there, I think we create a safe space for someone and we enter that space with them and then we can share. But I also think it does something to, to us, to me, you know, I, so I'm talking to these guys outside that are fixing my, my house and I'm only talking about them because that was day before yesterday. I can tell you the major milestones in both their lives. And, and I couldn't have spent more than 40 minutes with them in five minute intervals over the week that they were here. 
I could tell you how many grandkids and great-grands they have. I could tell you what jobs they've had, their marriages, where they live, what they do for a living, some of their injuries. And it comes from listening and then asking the next question, you know? So the guy had a, actually, one of the guys had a, uh, he took his shirt off. He's working out there in the sun and he's got a scar down his chest. And, and I said, you had surgery, didn't you? Oh yeah, I had surgery. They cut me open like a guy does, right? I asked the next question. I said, man, that sounds like it was hard. Oh yeah. Then I got to another level of real. And then I asked another question and something about, you know, what did that do to your life? And wow, that's how I found out about he had to, he lost his license for his career and had to do something else and how he's rebuilding. And I mean, we connected. And in that space, by the time I got to the place where I was talking about how God looks out for us, and that was the bomb of Gilead. Those words were meaningful. And he was able to receive them because he, I, I think, because he knew that they came from a place of compassion and, and recognition. It wasn't just like, oh, okay, oh, you had heart surgery. Well, I'll pray for you. And why don't you come to my church this Sunday? Like that would have been the end of the conversation, you know, but to care, yeah, to care about people. And I think that's part of what I brought back. I think it's part of what I brought back from Afghanistan. I don't think I listened very well before I went. I I wouldn't have told you that. I would have said, yeah, I listened great. (laughs) Because I'm smart, right? (laughs) As I'm listening to you, I keep thinking about how that your experiences in Afghanistan shaped and prepared you for what you're doing now. You work as a spiritual director working with people. As you look back, how did Afghanistan prepare you? You've talked some about that, but I'd like to hear what how you think about that preparation what, and leading into this now. Yeah, you know, a lot of people will, will write me because I have books. And I love it. I love it that people write me. They're dreaming of the field or um, they're on the field and they'll write me. But especially young people, they'll write me and they'll say, you know, what should I do to prepare? I'm quite sure they want me to tell them, you know, take this class. You should go to Perspectives, which you should. That's a great program. Oh, you should learn a little bit about the culture and read some of their history and literature. And yeah, you should do that. That's great. But I always tell them that the most important thing is, is to develop their own personal intimacy with God. and to figure out their identity in Christ, who they are, to see themselves in God's eyes. In America, we have a lot of supports. And when things go bad, we have people in places that we can turn to. When we get to the field, it doesn't work that way. And the spiritual battle is is horrific. It's not that it's harder than living in America. It's that maybe 20 years of highs and lows in the United States get compressed down to a one-week experience on the field. It, it's just intense. I've wa- I just watched so many people come out there and we all know scripture, we know the right answers. If we can see ourselves in God's eyes, if we can hear his Holy Spirit speaking to us, if we can recognize his invitations if we can sense the seductive temptations of the enemy that look really good and resist those things, when we go through the fire, when we go through the flood, we can have the confidence that God is with us. When we get kind of thrown out on the beach on the other side, we can get up and walk because we can find the God that we know so intimately. So for me, I, and I think I, I had told you before, uh, some practical of my 
my uh, journey to spiritual direction. But the heart of it is, is this. We go through the fire and the flood, and the only one that's with us is God. When the world comes crashing down around us, and, and whether that means we're sitting in an oncologist's office and holding our spouse's hand in that moment getting a diagnosis, it's God who's with us. Or we're you know, facing a job loss or, God forbid, the loss of someone we love. These big experiences of our lives. It's only God who's with us. And, and for me, spiritual direction, part of spiritual direction or my attraction initially was this idea that, you know, when people I love and care about on the field here in the States are going through the hard times, only God's going to be there with them and only God's with me. And I want to help them hear God speaking to them personally in the, in the depths of their being and know and, and recognize his voice. That's where it started for me. And then I discovered that, oh, wow, people who are not going through hard times really want to hear more of what the Spirit is saying. They really want deeper intimacy with God. Sometimes we're just in a kind of a dull place. We're not crying out for God. And we're like, wait a minute, isn't there anything more? And again, spiritual direction fits there. So it, it really has, yes, it's grown out of my experience in Afghanistan. But I love the ministry because it's so much about the individual diving deeper into the presence of God within them. And I, I just, I don't think it gets better than that. I had somebody tell me one time, who'd been a lifelong Christian, Tina, you're the first person that helped me meet God. And I was really perplexed about that. But as we had more conversation around it, I think what I helped her do was learn to relate to God and to have a dynamic of relationship that somehow had gotten missed along the way. And that's a precious thing when, when somebody can step into that relationship in the form of a relationship, not an idea, not just knowledge. Yeah, I, I think it's all, it goes back a little bit to that layer on layer, that there's layers on layers to God and layers on layers to us. And I don't believe I could have known God as intimately and deeply at 25 as I can today in my middle 50s. And I think when I get to 80, if I get to 80, I, I believe that I will know God in even deeper layers of me. I mean, that deepening relationship is such a, it's such a sweet invitation and a powerful gift. And, and honestly, I didn't know it was available to me when I first came to faith. Like, I thought, this is as good as it gets, man. I am like on fire for Jesus. This is as good as it gets. <laughs> and, every, and oh, and I looked at people who were older and I said, yeah, you know, you're kind of dead. <laughs> But then I, I met people who were older, who weren't, you know, all exuberant and praise God like I was, but who had such a deep and abiding intimacy with God that, that I, I was just in awe of. I think that's part of the invitation of aging mm -hmm. with Christ. Mm -hmm. When you think of your years walking with Christ, what's a common thread that you see throughout? A common thread. Yeah, I think there's a couple of common threads. I think we each have an uber image or a meta narrative, maybe a meta metaphor that is the gospel to us. How did I meet Christ? How did Christ meet me? Who was I before? Who did I become? The gospel incarnate in an, in, in an individual's life. And I think that's been that's been quite a consistent, I have my metaphor, a kind of a, 
a story that this is really what happened in my life. And this is where I was, and this is who I am, and this is how God came and met me. And that story for each person is absolutely unique. I think that's a, a thread that continues in my life, maybe like the baseline of the music. Mm-hmm. And we enter new chapters of that baseline. But there's also a, a piece that is a hunger within me that's been cons- consistently present. I don't want to say consistent because I think it's I think it weaves and bobs and, and manifests itself in different ways in different times. I remember articulating it once as, I want to live in 24-7 awareness, communion with God. And I, I, I made that pronouncement when I was about 36. So I'd been a Christian for about 11, 12 years. And I said it to someone who was about 65 and she laughed at me. And she said, I just love the way you pray, Kate, <laughs> which I think meant you're silly. <laughs> We all want to live in 24-7 communion with God. But I really think that's been, um, that that's sort of an underlying and constant desire for me. And it manifests itself in different ways of, of wanting to be in this moment-by-moment communion with God. And I have not achieved that 24-7 awareness of and communion with God, but I will. Hmm. It makes me think of Brother Lawrence. Yeah. One of my hopes with these conversations is to encourage people who may be feeling a nudge from God and might feel timid about taking steps of faith forward. What encouragement might, might you give them? Yeah, yeah. I love it when God nudges us. I think the first, if I had encouragement, is to really ask, is this you, God? Is this nudge you? Whatever it is, whether it's a, you know, a big thing or a little thing. I, I remember talking with a woman who was really feeling the, indica- the invitation to move closer to her grandkids and to be more involved in, in caregiving with her grandkids. And that doesn't make great newsletters home like being in Afghanistan, you know. But so what? If it's God's invitation, it's what we should do. I think the, the first encouragement I would, I would say is, who's nudging you? Is that God nudging you? Or is that some guilty old should. Oh, if I was a real Christian, I would do this, but I don't want to. Well, and wait a minute, is that God nudging you? And I think once we decide that, yes, this nudge is coming from God, it's not a should, it's not some guilt trip laid on us by uh, someone else in our lives or even by some old tape in our heads, but it's really God. If it's really God nudging you, then I think the next steps become, in a way, easy. I used to tell people, and people say, why are you going to Afghanistan? And I I would kind of shrug my shoulders and say, well, you know, Jesus invited me to walk with him in Afghanistan. And you know what? I was just crazy in love with him enough to say yes. (laughs) And I I love that because I felt like people wanted these big stories like, Dun, da, da, dun, here I go to change the world. And I did love changing my little corner of the world. But I, I think this is, a, this, is a, this is a journey with God. And, and when, when God says, let's go walk this way, whether it's to work in a local soup kitchen or take in a, a foster kid or visit someone at a senior citizen's home or just write someone a letter, which is not easy. Or, or turn your life upside down and, and go overseas or start something new. I think if your idea is that I'm, 
this is what Jesus has invited me to do with him, and that's the only place I want to be, then you, you just want to do it. Does that, does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> we, we tend to do a lot of pros and cons, you know, and I, I've t- especially young people, they'll, they'll say, you know, I want to do the thing that's most fruitful. And I say, really? I think you should do the thing God is inviting you to do, whether it's fruitful or not. <laughs> no, but I have to do the big thing. Well, okay, if God invites you to do the big thing. I told a young person last night who knows I live in Afghanistan, I said, uh, I said, you know, I don't get any extra credit for going. She said, what do you mean? And she's dreaming missions. And I said, I, I just don't. I don't get any extra credit for going to Afghanistan. I think I get it for the way I sat with someone and drank tea and listened to them and prayed for them. And I think I get it today for the way I stand in front of my elderly mother and listen to her especially when I'm tired and she's not making a lot of sense. And I think the question we want to ask is, what is love calling me to? Mm. No matter what it is, how big, how small, and lean into that. If we know it's love calling, then it's our joy, our privilege. That's a beautiful way to put it. What is love calling me to? Mm. Kate, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's been fun. I love these questions. You ask the big picture questions and I live in the little picture place. (laughs) (laughs) If people wanted to get a hold of you, how could they find you? Yeah. Oh, come find me. You can always find me on, on, on uh, Facebook. If you can search on Kate McCord storyteller, I'll come up. Yeah. I'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. I'd love to hear from, from anyone. If you're dreaming something, if you just want to connect, um, share your thoughts. I'll listen. I might even ask the second question over email and, and you'll need to write me back again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I can be reached at email at uh, kate.mccord.storyteller at gmail.com. I have a website, storytellerkm.com and uh, a ministry website, santeministries.org. But you can find them all on, on, on Tina's website, We'll list them all. It'll be easy to find. (laughs) Yeah, but I do love hearing from people. And I, yeah, if you're listening to this podcast and you think, is is Kate going to care what I have to say? Yes. Send me an email. (laughs) That's great. And before we close, I, I wonder for those who might not be familiar with spiritual direction, share what that practice is and what it looks like to come into a relationship with a spiritual director. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, spiritual direction is an, is an ancient ministry that reinvents itself every generation. And the Catholics have been doing it for a long time. And, and on the evangelical side, we are really moving into this ministry because it's, it so meets a need. Spiritual direction is about a three-way conversation. It's the director, the directee, and the Spirit of God. And the director's role in the conversation is to listen to both the person who's coming to them and the Spirit of God speaking to them and to ask questions and explore what's happening in someone's life and to help them hear the Spirit speaking within them. And that's the key. So spiritual direction is never about, oh, I have a word for you. Let me tell you what you should do. That's not what it's about. And it's not about, let me teach you the principles of inductive scriptural analysis or something. That's not what it's about. It's about, huh, I wonder what God is saying to you about that. You know, earlier we talked about uh, leaning into the nudge and trying to discern, 
is that you, Jesus, or something else? Well, this is what we do in spiritual direction. It's one of the things we do. We lean into the nudge, and we do that in conversation, and we listen. And the individual who's coming to spiritual direction grows in their ability to recognize the voice of God speaking within them. That's just an, an amazing thing. There's more to it about that. I mean, people have written books on books on books. Um, uh, the way a, what a session normally looks like is, is people will connect face-to-face or uh, over the internet, will welcome the Holy Spirit. The individual coming for direction will start the conversation wherever they are, because we know Christ is present. And the spiritual director will, will listen and help them explore and go deeper and explore more and listen to what the Spirit is saying within them. Some may not have heard of this before, so it's an introduction where that's a new term. And I think one of the things that is important if you're talking to a spiritual director is to choose a spiritual director who understands your faith tradition and deeply respects it. I I know when I chose my spiritual director, I, I wanted someone who believed in a crucified and resurrected Christ. There are things that are important to each one of us. And and so when you find that director, it's quite reasonable to ask, what is your faith tradition? This is what mine is. What's a little bit of your background, a little bit of mine? Can you even understand my life? Mm -hmm. And then often when we start with a director, I think it's, it's good to meet once and then decide, okay, is this a good fit? And then I think it's good to meet, if you decide, yeah, to meet maybe three, four or five times and then step back and reevaluate. Is this serving me? And by serving me, is this nurturing my relationship with God, with myself and with others? And then, yeah, if it is, yeah, continue. And if it's not, then you step away and find someone else. I hear a theme in your life, Kate, of learning to listen. And it's coming so beautifully in the season that you're in right now. And having been in Afghanistan, really having to learn to listen it, in a whole new way, I think being in, in a, an unfamiliar language really forces us to do that very in a very tangible way. But then that opens up the door for God to cultivate something in us that helps us listen in the way that you're listening to people today. Well, thank you. I hope that's true. I'm learning. I do think that one of the things that's so important about spiritual direction and and that I bring from spiritual direction into other relationships is a listening without an agenda, without trying to accomplish something, without thinking of how am I going to respond while this person is talking, or what is it that I want them to do or think or believe, and how am I going to get them there? And I think that kind of open-handed listening really honors another person. I don't think it's about the mechanics of listening. I think it's the position of, of respect, of honoring another person. You and what God is doing in you is unique and precious and beautiful, no matter who you are or where you are in your spiritual journey. And the only thing I want to do is nurture what God is doing within you. And that creates safe space. Yeah, and we grow in safe spaces. Mm-hmm. Kate, thank you so much for this conversation. Well, thank you, Tina. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Listening is such a gift. I love when Kate said, when we really listen, we communicate to someone that they matter, that their story matters. The very act of listening to someone deeply models the heart of God. 
In my own conversations with people, the best interactions about God have come from listening and asking the natural curiosity questions that conversation produces. I believe Kate was right on track when she said, what keeps it from being an agenda is asking the follow-up question, and maybe the next question, and maybe another question, where then we have the opportunity to hear the story underneath the obvious. I believe that best evangelism comes from our own personal and close walk with Jesus. Kate said in Afghanistan she had to enter the story before she could present the story. I'm truly interested in the ways you are engaging with the biblical stories. What are the ways you help the words of scripture come alive for people? I invite you to join me in the Faithful Innovation private Facebook group where we engage with these questions. I have to tell you, my favorite part of this whole conversation was when Kate asked, what is love calling you to? I would love to hear how God is working in your life. Come on over to the group and share what love is calling you to. All the links where you can connect with Kate will be listed on the Faithful Innovation website. Just type Kate in the search and this episode will come right up. If something's stirring in you and you'd like to share it with somebody, please drop me an email send it to hello at faithfulinnovation.com or message me through any of our social media channels. I really do love hearing from you. If whatever's stirring is something you need to say out loud, you can schedule a complimentary conversation, 30 minutes. That's my gift to you. All the information is on the website, faithfulinnovation.com. Don't be shy. Just go ahead and schedule it. Also, I have an update for you. As a result of what God has been unfolding in my piece of the world, I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be moving this podcast to an every other week release for a while. I'm part of a team that's working on an exciting new faith-based nonprofit that we're launching in Baltimore, Maryland, helping unemployed and underemployed young men build capacity for meaningful work and helping prepare them for career track employment. We're sprinting to the finish in renovating space and launching the program. If you're interested, please check out our website, faithandworkenterprises.org. Thanks so much for listening. Make it a great day and find your unique way to share the love of God with the people you encounter. Bye for now.